Hello, welcome to episode 11 of what some will call Lies and Reruns. I'm Mike Lawson. I used to have a weekly storytelling podcast, and now I'm sharing those stories with you here on the Afterthought Media feed. Hi, everyone. Welcome. On this episode, I'm going to start with a, a, a deep one. This one's about my dad. It's called The Phantom. And uh, I turned this uh, story into an illustrated zine issue uh, that I sent out not too long ago. And I sent it to my dad, and he hasn't mentioned it, and I haven't mentioned it. So the relationship hasn't gotten that much better. (laughs) It's kind of icy, but here it is. This story was originally published on Tuesday, August 7th of 2012. Enjoy. Episode 39, The Phantom. A fictitious creature that is often spoken about but never seen, the phantom in my life is finally revealed. Hi, my name's Mike Lawson and I tell what some would call lies. Um, I really love telling stories. I love, I love, telling, I love telling, stories. telling stories. What some would call lies. 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 Vomit. You lying son of a gun. Kind of creepy. Son of a bitch. He said. She said. I said. What the hell? Liar, liar, pants on fire. I love your dress. And I'm not making this up. You are a goddamn liar. I'm back, bitches. <laughs> I love telling stories. This podcast is in no particular order, a collection of stories from my life that I retell as accurately as I see fit. For many years, my dad was known as The Phantom. In high school, most of my friends knew that my dad was still in the picture. They knew that he'd occasionally answer the phone. They knew I would sometimes show up driving his car, but they never saw him. After school plays, when my classmates would walk out from the performing arts building and get greeted by their families, I would often see nobody, or sometimes just my mom. My dad would go to high school football games, but when I took the field with the marching band, he would disappear to the concession stand. His existence was known, but he was seldom seen, and therefore, my friends started calling him the Phantom. My father and I aren't exactly close. There's no defining moment for me to tell you about or any dispute to point to that would explain our at-arm's-length relationship. Yet, since I was a child, I remember that things have always been slightly cold. It wasn't easy for the guy that liked watching NASCAR and football on TV to form a bond with his 7-year-old that not only knew all the lyrics to Like a Virgin, but could also reenact the entire dance sequence from the 1984 MTV Music Video Awards. I mean, come on, remember that fabulous boy toy belt buckle? As a boy, I always especially dreaded the barbershop. Dreaded sitting in a room of men that talked about fishing, sports, and women. Dreaded getting asked, even if it was only in jest, if I had a girlfriend. Dreaded that hour of watching my dad make manly small talk. These visits put italics on the clear differences that my dad and I had. Many people have pointed to the relationship between gays and their fathers and have theorized that a distant relationship could be the root or cause of the homosexuality. But I'd argue that many times, like in my case, The homosexuality was the root or cause of my distant relationship. My dad was just ill-equipped 
to handle a son that wanted to be in musical theater and not football, and idolized Mariah Whitney and Madonna instead of Maguire, Sosa, and Jordan. I've never doubted that my father loved me. I've just always been painfully aware that he doesn't understand me. On Thursday morning of last week, I voluntarily walked into a barbershop for the first time in my life. The man that cut my hair was a stereotypical barber. It could have been any of the men that cut my hair back when I was a kid. He smelled of cigarettes and Barbasol, and he wanted to talk about sports and weather. I felt like an eight-year-old, uncomfortably sitting in a comfortable chair. Lucky, I guess, that I had enough sense not to ask for the buzz cut that I used to get back then. The barber told me about his favorite football team and how they had close to no chance this coming season due to the mistakes made during the draft, and I sat still, like a hostage, trying not to upset him so he would let me go unharmed, or at least allow me to call home one last time. And then he asked a rather innocuous question, a question I've been asked a hundred times before at least. Are you married? With that question, something happened. I was suddenly present. It's the best word I can think of to describe what I felt. I was no longer a timid little queer boy with something to hide. Are you married? He was asking me more than just my relationship status. He was offering me a challenge. Are you going to be pitiful or powerful today, Mike? Are you married? It's kind of difficult for guys like me to get married nowadays, I said, heart pounding. Why is that, he asked. Well... Gay marriage is illegal in like 45 states, I told him. Oh, he said, making eye contact with me in the mirror. Gotcha. And then he told me about his gay nephew, and he asked me about what product I used in my hair, and our conversation became comfortable. To give my dad credit, since I officially came out of the closet in 2000, not when I unofficially came out in 1989 by asking Santa for a VHS copy of South Pacific, when I came out officially, he stopped teasing me about some of my more effeminate attributes. He stopped calling me Michelle, and he stopped saying things like, the girls are going shopping, when I decided to go with my mom and sister to the mall instead of with him to the sporting goods store. But it's hard to forget some of these early memories. It's like the smell of bacon on a Sunday morning. So there's been progress. And I appreciate the fact that my pops is still around. I'm lucky that we're able to patch some of these things up. And just like when I was in the barber chair, I realized that with my dad, I have a choice here. I can sit in the chair, paralyzed, looking like a pathetic fuck, or I can take responsibility. I can let things be as they are, or I can do my best to make sure he's no longer a phantom. One more story to go. This one up next is called House Slippers, Frozen Turkeys, and Charitable Giving. It was written and published back on Monday, August 13th of 2012. Here you go. I was a professional beggar. Not a stand-on-the-freeway, off-ramp type, but close. When I was the director of programming for a boys and girls club, I spent a lot of time trying to find resources for families we worked with. 
families like Matthew's. Matthew was five years old, and he walked to the club after school and stayed there until we closed at 8 p.m. when he signed himself out and walked home every day, alone, in the dark, five years old. It wasn't an ideal situation, but from my perspective, the club offered safety, a snack if he needed it, and we helped him finish his homework before offering engaging, enriching activities. So although I hated seeing Matthew walk home alone each night, I was at least satisfied that he spent the last four hours with positive adult role models and interacting with other kids instead of sitting at home alone. Matthew was a member for a few weeks before I finally met his mother. She came in to meet our staff one evening, and that's when I learned that Matthew's 11-year-old sister was dying of leukemia. And the mom worked a full-time job as a hotel maid, and when she wasn't working, she was spending time with her dying daughter. This story totally ripped my heart to pieces, but it also reminded me why I was doing this work. At the club, we weren't moving mountains, but we were protecting some really great kids like Matthew that could grow up to be mountain movers, or better. Every year, we served a community dinner a few days before Thanksgiving. This was a huge event for us. We invited the entire community, not just our members, and we usually served like 200 plates of turkey and all the fixins. My budget for the dinner was fairly close to zero, and we relied heavily on the seasonal influx of guilty wealthy people looking to give. My begging for donations usually began before Halloween. I was always looking for people or organizations to give us money, food, or manpower. About four years ago, just before I started worrying too much about the dinner, I was contacted by the president of a local service organization. She told me that they were looking for a large Thanksgiving time service project. I played it cool. Like a pitcher on the mound, I composedly checked first base over my shoulder, nodded slightly at the catcher's signal. Then I threw it directly over home base. We could really use some help with our annual Thanksgiving dinner, I told her. Do you guys think you have the ability to cook 20 frozen turkeys and then come help me serve the dinner to the community? No problem, she said base hit. Then I decided to see how far I could get. Well, I have the turkey donation secured, I told her, but I'm still kind of scrambling to try to find someone to donate the potatoes, and then I still need to figure out how to get them all cooked and mashed. The trick to being a good salesperson is to never ask for someone to buy. You need to simply plant the seed of want in your customer's brain and then water it. Well, for 200 people, you'd need about almost 100 pounds of potatoes. We could buy those and cook them, she told me. So for once, the community Thanksgiving dinner didn't have me begging, scrambling, and stressing. Instead, I was able to focus on marketing the dinner and getting the word out. During this time, I was approached by a woman that worked in the admissions office of a local university. She told me that her office was looking to throw money at some needy people in the community so that they could feel less guilty when they enjoyed their lavish holiday. Maybe she phrased it differently, though. Normally, I would have asked her to help with our community dinner, but since that was covered, I instead thought of Matthew. As I said, Matthew's mom worked as a housekeeper at a hotel, and her hourly wage, which was incredibly low, wasn't paid to her unless she showed up, so she was forced to decide if she wanted to spend time at the bedside of her dying daughter or if she wanted to go in to work to make money to feed the family. And then, around this time, 
just about a month before Thanksgiving, Matthew's sister passed away. And after the death, Matthew's mom returned to work the very next day, not even able to take a single day off to grieve. My heart was breaking for this family, and when the woman from the university said she wanted to help someone, I suggested that the admissions office adopt Matthew's family for Thanksgiving. We made all the boring arrangements, and the donations, including a turkey that would have to be refrigerated, would be delivered on the same evening as our big community Thanksgiving dinner. I let Matthew's family know that their Thanksgiving dinner was covered. A group of people wanted to help you guys enjoy this holiday, I told Matthew's mom. I let her know that, aside from the food, the turkey, the veggies, the bread, the pie, that these people were also going to be buying a roasting pan and dish towels and napkins and plates. Literally everything that they needed for that day would be purchased for them. Eventually, the community dinner night rolls around. I'm running around like a crazy person, the worst kind of crazy person, a crazy person in a tie. And one of my staff members says, Mike, this is Matthew's dad. He's here. So I shake his hand. I'd never met him before. Uh, he follows me to my office where I show him the boxes of food. And then I say, why don't you follow me to the kitchen and I'll show you where we're storing the turkey. On the way to the kitchen, I tried to make small talk, but he wasn't much of a talker. I also noticed that he was wearing house slippers. That's kind of tacky, I thought to myself. He wore house slippers to our Thanksgiving dinner? All of the flyers had said that it was a Sunday's best kind of event, but whatever. I made sure Matthew's dad understood what piles in my office were his, and I made sure he knew he could just get the turkey whenever he wanted. And then I left. I went and I started putting out other fires. I saw Matthew's dad go to the kitchen and take the turkey and one box of food out to the car. I thought it was kind of weird that he went and got the turkey so early because we hadn't even eaten our dinner yet. In the hall, I ran into Matthew's mom and her older son. I told her the same thing I told the dad. We had about six boxes of food and supplies plus that huge-ass turkey, so I'm really glad that she brought all these men to help her carry it out. Skip ahead 30 minutes to an hour. Our dinner is moving along swimmingly. I stopped stressing about the quantity of food, and I started stressing about the speed of my staff's ability to clean up the facility, and Matthew's mom politely motioned me over. First of all, thank you so much for all the food in those boxes, she said. But is there going to be a turkey? Yeah, I said. And then I looked at the table of people sitting with her. Just before I said, your husband took the turkey and one box of food. My Nancy Drew instincts kicked in. She ain't got no husband. And her non-husband in the house slippers wasn't sitting here with them. I gave away the turkey to some unknown man in slippers. Now Matthew's family didn't know exactly what food to expect, so I don't think that they, they would miss the one box of food that Matthew's not-dad took. But I specifically promised a turkey. I specifically told her not to go out and buy a turkey. Damn it. This story does have a happy ending, though. We had 22 turkeys donated for a Thanksgiving feast, and we only cooked 20 of them. So I had planned on raffling off at least two turkeys to families, but instead I just raffled off one, and then I gave the leftover turkey to Matthew's family. And they were happy, and they enjoyed their Thanksgiving. And chances are the guy in the house slippers probably needed the food.
done. I shared two stories with you, and believe it or not, I have two more for you if you want to hear them. Just come back to the next episode. Uh, I'll be sharing a story called Goodbye to All That, uh, which I think might be my favorite episode uh, that I ever did of What Someone Call Lies. It's a nice story about kind of a, a love affair with the city of Phoenix. <laughs> come, come hear that. Uh, and then I also have a story called The Roommate, which I think is about when I lived with a prostitute. I think, um, but I'm not certain. So come back and see if I'm right on the next episode of What Some Will Call Lies in reruns. I hope to see you then. Bye-bye. I like to eat pizza.